great to have you, Jennifer. Thanks for yeah. joining us. Maybe we'll um, we'll start at the start and uh, maybe tell us a little bit about your early years, kind of, you know, we'll get into what you're doing today. But before that, just want to get a bit of your backstory. So, Sure, absolutely. So honored to be here, excited um, to be discussing this. I'm Jennifer Joe. Uh, my backstory is I'm classically trained in internal medicine and the nephrology. So I'm from uh, Mississippi, so born and raised in Mississippi, which is the poorest state in the United States. Um, and then my grandparents were immigrants and that's clearly influenced uh, my life. Uh -huh. um, and also uh, my awareness, I think of healthcare disparities. Oh, I'm so sorry, let me just um, put that on mute. Um, my awareness of healthcare disparities and um, my sensitivity and I think commitment to it. Um, so uh, I was the oldest uh, of three. So as a good Chinese child, um, they, needed, they needed either a lawyer or a doctor out the gate. <laughs> and I caved <laughs> and I said, okay, I'll do the, I, I'll do the doctor route. Um, uh, they, you know, my parents are incredibly supportive and um, I was a creative person. Um, being a doctor, I think, has been great and valuable. Um, it gives me, I think, a lot of meaning in my life in terms of being able to help. Um, so you, always, you, always, you, always, you always had, you always knew this was the path, did you? No, no? I knew this was the path, which I think is like, explains why my career is always like, okay, she seems like she's doing okay academically and then she kind of falls off. Or <laughs> she looks like she's on a straight and narrow like doctor pathway and then she falls off. <laughs> I think really hard to believe about you. Sorry? You're not the kind of fall off the path. Um, <laughs> I look for creative uh, alternatives or uh, something different. Um, I, so I guess there's two things. One, um, I, I love medicine, the ability to create meaningful change in a person's life, the um, willingness for people to let you into their lives. Um, and then, uh, you know, you're a friend and you're confident and you're a guide. And that's really meaningful. Um, I think we've all heard the, all the complaints of medicine, um, of how that's very difficult these days. So I was always committed to that um, and that um, continues to be a driving force. Uh, how it's accomplished, I think I explore different options in terms of how it's accomplished. Um, so I went to the University of Mississippi for medical school, then Georgetown for internal medicine. And then actually I came up to Boston for my nephrology fellowship, which I completed. Um, and at the end of that journey, I was um, a little disillusioned with the way that medicine, or maybe a lot disillusioned with the way that medicine was being practiced, um, especially because I felt like my dad was the heyday of the generation. Like my dad was a small town doctor. Everyone knew him. It was, you know, small town doctor in Mississippi. Everyone knew him. We go to the grocery store, people stop and say, hey, Dr. Joe, thank you so much for taking that extra time. See me after hours being so great with my child. Um, and I somehow grew up with the illusion that that was how medicine was going to be practiced. Uh -huh. uh, and I don't, I think medicine drastically changed. And so my experience with it um, was very disappointing, uh, which is why uh, I was trying to look for 
um, different models to practice healthcare, um, was really interested in different ways people um, were launching like direct primary care. Um, uh, that was really interesting. And there's these blends of these concierge type medicines, uh, which were all just interesting in terms of different care deliveries and fixing that problem. Um, somehow that led me to start a software company and a media company. Can I, can, I stop you there? can I stop you there for a second? Yeah, so tell us, without you know, going too deep into it, but tell us a little bit about the frustration. I love the way you talked about your dad and that, you know, being the center of that community and people coming, like, and then you had a very different experience. So tell us a little bit, tell us a little bit about your frustrations, because I think that will help us understand kind of what's more. I always think frustrations are great because they kind of get to usually what's motivating somebody, you know? Um. Yeah, so I, you know, I think there's two pieces to that. Definitely my training in the South was interesting for a few reasons. Um, how healthcare was being delivered there. Um, there were a couple of, a number of incidences where we were um, grossly discriminating against um, people of different sexual orientation. So I do remember this one time that just sticks out of my mind. I was a student, I had a resident, we were taking care of an HIV positive patient at that time in the emergency room. Um, she was afraid to touch him. Um, she really uh, said, you know, let's, let's just quickly say hi and then get out. Um, and I felt that was really unfortunate and unfair um, to an HIV positive person who, were, who we were assuming was, was gay. And that was driving our decision. Um, I think that was disturbing. And then um, we have a, a fair amount of racial disparities in Mississippi. And um, you know, it's clear that uh, I was disappointed in our communication with women of color, how we approach their reproductive rights um, and how we explained it to them. Um, there are definitely some physicians who were very compassionate, um, but definitely um, for me as a woman, it was disappointing and disheartening. Um, and so that really, I think, just influenced um, how I thought healthcare should be delivered. So yes, the Mississippi story does characterize <laughs> a lot of um, do healthcare disparities exist? I lived it. Um, what does it feel like to be the patient? Um, you know, I think it was unusual in that I saw it. I was a person of color in a very dichotomous um, community at that time. Um, and, you know, I was not empowered. I was a medical student. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. And did, 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 did that kind of experience change as you moved to Boston or did you see other instances that just got you frustrated with the, with the system? Maybe different ways, I don't know, but uh, maybe talk. Um, I would say in terms of um, our relationship to patients and, um, you know, uh, gender rights and rights in general, it, um, it improved. Boston's a radically different place. My training at Mass General and Brigham and Women was outstanding. Um, and it's really inspired me. With that said, how do you take 
um, the empowerment that you may receive at a different institution and say, how are we practicing medicine across the United States? Because how we practice medicine in Boston is not how medicine is practiced for the majority of the United States. Yeah, that would be fair. Yeah, well, it's yeah. good. Good, to, good, good, really, really good background to kind of like what's motivating you and what's what's driving you on. So you've been through that, you know, ups and downs, and and I'm sure there's lots of highs and lows. I'm always, you know, always humbled when I hear stories of like, you know, what what healthcare professionals do day to day, you know, and 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 week on week, and that, you know, and the good and the bad. But that's obviously kind of set you up for. Kind of your current tra trajectory. So talk us, talk us. Let's let's maybe move the conversation on to like, okay, what's what's the future and what are you doing? And talk, tell us through, talk us through that. Sure, absolutely. Um, so very inspired by innovation and digital health, and working to find ways to uh, bring that into the healthcare setting. Um, it can create a lot of efficiencies, and if done well. Um, you know, it can help close the gap in disparities. Um, can we bring a specialist like an endocrinologist or a stroke specialist into rural Mississippi so that they get the best care? Yes, it can be done. We talk about ways that it can't be done because of um, access to uh, high-speed internet, et cetera. But if done well, you can put it in the libraries. You can put it in employers' lobbies, which have been tried. And you're really starting to bring um, healthcare um, to the wider um, America who needs it the most. That's what I'm passionate about. Um, I currently have a talk show that's dedicated to looking at digital health initiatives, and I currently consult for a number of digital health and med tech companies um, on their products, but also uh, in driving innovation and creating um, a community of innovation. Yeah, I, I mean, I was going to ask you, Jen, if um, I guess I didn't realize that the community that you've built mostly full of, I think, physicians for the most part, and I guess some entrepreneurs um, was actually inspired by the social disparities. One thing I've noticed, um, well, I have two questions for you. One is, I know you have like 70K plus following. How did you kind of build that digital presence, you know, and become a digital influencer among the physician community. I'd be curious to know if that was intentional or just kind of organically came about. Um, and then my second piece, just following on from what you said is one thing I've noticed, right, there's people who are really passionate about some of these causes. And unfortunately, they end up just talking to each other about it. And it doesn't really make its way into mainstream uh, conversations or mainstream medicine or whatever you want to call it how do we bridge that gap and I guess what have you seen that proves that digital is the one that's bridging that gap yeah so I'm going to take that in two pieces uh first um uh yeah, I know it's a little bit sad, but I think we all know this. Uh, <laughs> so we, we gloss over it and we call it physician burnout, but at the end of the day, the life of a physician is a very, very lonely life, meaning um, you're working long hours, uh, 60, 80, 100 hour weeks. Um, that makes it difficult for you to have relationships, um, makes it, uh, has previously been complicated by divorces, um, but we're also spread out across the United States. The United States is massive. So um, 
it's hard for one physician in a small town to connect with another physician and feel like, hey, I have someone to commiserate with. Mm-hmm. Um, medical societies are a great place for that, um, but uh, their movement towards digital has been somewhat slow. So mm-hmm. overall, I think the loneliness of physicians uh, has increased and it's also changed with more uh, women physicians moving into their workforce. And so how do women physicians find mentors, sponsors, community, and a sense of support has, uh, was a big driver for me. I felt that um, especially acutely when graduating fellowship and that I was just thrown out into the wild and um, said, figure it out. And at that time I didn't have that many friends because I've been working in the hospital um, for like 10 years. Uh, so I was really inspired by trying to figure out digital communities and growing and creating digital communities. Uh, so I was one of the early experimenters with social media. Um, and then I also, Medstro was dedicated to uh, creating digital communities for physicians. Um, and is still used by the New England Journal of Medicine and the American Medical Association, along with a number of others. Um, so really excited to see some of that come to fruition. Um, because of that, I've been on social media for a while. Um, and then two, I think when we think about social media, there's the concept of authenticity and figuring out a, a way to clearly communicate your authenticity, but also being true to yourself and true to others. Um, so for me, being authentic to what I believed in was big. And I think um, that authenticity, but also consistency, um, people appreciate and, and with that said, clearly I'm a, uh, a woman physician who have had struggles with uh, my career in terms of finding mentorship, sponsorship, uh, just the daily interactions of how I handle what we might now call microaggressions or macroaggressions, uh, meaning how do you command um, a room or run an ER team, uh, meaning I've yeah. been working the ER for the last 10 years. I often work it alone at night. I look I'm a smaller person, uh, so often patients confuse me for not the physician. So um, a nurse or a respiratory therapist or someone else, which makes the dynamics interesting, makes the patient-physician relationship interesting, and also my ability to effectively um, communicate with the patient and also deliver care. Um, but those are the common struggles I have, which I think resonate with um, the group of young women physicians who are coming up. Um, and then also my interest in digital has uh, really resonated with younger physicians. Does that resonate with you, Chandana, as a physician? Yeah, I think so. I definitely, um, yeah, a lot of what Jen has mentioned, I feel like I've experienced it, but I think I just never really gave it a voice. And I guess I moved out of clinical practice, to be quite honest, out of some of the frustration. So I think there's a little bit of uh, the story woven in there for sure but I think it's really admirable how you've given it a voice and you've given it a cause and you know, you've taken it to the next level. Yeah, so that's, I think the question, Shandana, which is um, if we gave it a voice and addressed it, could we keep more physicians all together? Cause uh, this loneliness burnout um, is, affects women and men. Um, can we keep more physicians doing what they originally signed up to do, which is yeah. that really meaningful patient-physician relationship. Yeah. Um, and then that's interesting, right? That we lose great talent like Chandana to um, industry or something else because it gives you a few outlets. One, the creativity to create meaningful good, which I think physician leadership hasn't necessarily 
um, allowed physicians to have that creativity or innovation. Um, and, and then just frankly, um, in the US at least, a pathway for women physicians to move into leadership and have equitable pay. Sorry, I'm just gonna call it. <laughs> and maybe Chandana's like, I can more quickly get this over, over here. There. <laughs> in which case, we've lost massive talent. Because yeah. um, there's clear data that patients um, really need more women physicians to take care of them in so many different ways. Yeah. I think this, my son was, was thinking about going down the doctor route and you know, it didn't happen, but you know, I was very happy it didn't happen because you know, any of the doctors I know, it's just, it's such a brutal, um, such a brutal thing, you know, and uh, especially in the US. And I'm wondering, you know, and especially then for female doctors and there's like, you know, you've raised a whole bunch of issues here, but yeah, I guess, I guess like, that's, that's a really bad situation for healthcare to be in, right? really bad situation that you know when I was growing up it was a very attractive uh, field to go into and, and now I would argue it's not you know um, and so I suppose Jen I wonder if you if you can see if that's going to change in in a in a short period of time or you know what what do you think is going to be needed for it to or can it be turned around kind of can we make it an attractive career path for people yeah it, you know, it's clearly still an attractive career path. And I think Dr. Fauci made it more popular. Mm -hmm. um, fundamentally, I think for the US, the big uh, problem that we run into is the student debt that is incurred for yeah. US medical yeah. students um, compared to um, physicians from other countries. Um, so we have the four years of college, which is expensive in the, in the US. <laughs> So that's yeah. expensive. And then we have the four years of medical school, which is also expensive. So the average physician graduates when they're about 30 to 35 with about um, $250,000 in debt, which is astronomical. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, they've lost 10 years of earning power. They're now at a place, especially women, where they'd like to have a family, potentially have kids. Um, they have that cost, but to live under $250,000 in debt, um, I think we just can't phantom. So I think that's a fundamental issue that <laughs> yeah. if we could find a way to address, which I think we are seeing a little bit of that with yeah. um, six-year pathways through college and medical school. Yeah. So I think that's a huge issue. And then what you talked about in terms of the errors and the burnout and, yeah. you know, okay, so it's good to see Dr. Fauci on and all that type of stuff, but it's still like, still a very inhumane path to go down, right? Don't you think? Uh, oh yeah, hands down. I think it's, I think there's definitely been some reform that's helped. Uh, so definitely the work hour restriction. So yeah. I, I was like the last of the generation that did the, oh, we're- Work as long hours? as- <laughs> Being capped at 80 hours? That's really nice. Or, <laughs> oh, you have to give me one day off a week and if I work 30 straight hours, you can't make me work 35 straight hours. Oh, that's right. So I was the last of the generation who was doing that. I was like, okay, I will occasionally work 32 to 35 hours straight mm -hmm. because I still had, even though we had some new regulations that said I couldn't, even though some of the attendings were like, I managed to do it. So I think it was always brutal. <laughs> in the, US. Yeah. Yeah. the work is a little bit better because they're, they're stricter about the, the number of hours that you do. Um, but I think in the United States and in Asia, it's, 
it's up to your consultant, up to your department. Do yeah, I think until it's the same in the UK and in Ireland. I mean, the junior doctors they they have like it's just horrendous. Anyway, we, there's probably yeah. a whole other series we could do on that. <laughs> let's, let's try and make it a bit more upbeat, right? So, the power of digital to you know provide better access to provide better care. You know, I think it's great to see physicians like you who are out there trying to get that message across because I don't think I don't think it's widespread enough. We spend a lot of time talking about things like digital therapeutics, and then you're like, how would you explain that to your primary care physician? Or how would you, you know? So there's so so such a big role. I mean, digital is only starting, I think, in terms of healthcare. So tell us a little bit about what you're doing to to engage more physicians, to get them excited, to get them educated, and maybe some of the good and bad stories of what you're like. Yeah. Oh yeah, uh, so uh, I've always been excited about digital therapeutics or uh, new digital diagnostics. I think we all know the hurdles to it. Um, we're pretty excited because the FDA has new regulatory pathways. We've had some nice investments from big companies that have proven that digital therapeutics can work from a clinical standpoint and have gotten FDA approval. So very exciting. I've always been a proponent, and I think that is driven by, um, I've always had a fear of pharmacological drugs. <laughs> Chanda, have you? Yeah, you know, like, it's, it's a little bit of hypertension, right? It's a little bit of hypertension. So they're a little bit like over, the guidelines would suggest, yeah, you should probably start doing something. I mean, we have like clear algorithmic stepwise guidelines now, but you know, 10, 15 years ago, it's like, do I want to start them on hydrochlorothiazide? Or I actually think they could get down to normal blood pressure if they just exercise for six uh, months, which is, I think, I have to review it. I'm in the ER now, but uh, the, the, the primary care guidelines. But hydrochlorothiazide, it's a diuretic. And then after a nephrology fellowship, it'll tank your potassium. And it just makes me paranoid that I'm giving something that could potentially be treated with exercise, if I could just appropriately motivate or structure an exercise regimen for a 35 or 40 year old, that would prevent me from giving them a pill that could potentially have um, electrolyte derangement. It's just for me, it's always struck out as a fear. <laughs> yeah, but, but isn't there a bias? Like you obviously are exposed to this. I don't think most uh, of our colleagues are sitting there and thinking, oh, this is great. So much investment has gone into the space and, uh, or even I think, now, thank, thank God for the FDA, I think it's coming um, in front of people at least a little bit, but at the end of the day, I just, honestly, this has not made it into clinical practice. Like most of these digital health products outside of maybe a telehealth consult, which is still very much your traditional consult just through a webcam. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I think it hasn't made it into clinical practice. I think the major hurdle was the regulatory pathway and also having enough clinical evidence. Um, yeah. But outside of that, you know, I think there was a recent publication, which I think we're going to, you know, essentially uh, speak to, which is um, physicians will decide the fate of the digital therapeutic industry. Like that was a little um, hubris on the one hand. <laughs> Donna, should we just acknowledge the hubris in that? <laughs> <laughs> well, it was not me. I won't say who it was. But potentially true and important. Yeah. Um, and it allowed me to reflect on the concept of um, physician education and physician education and awareness about digital therapeutics. Yeah. And I think 
fundamentally what I've seen is that classic tech or digital companies just don't understand how, how difficult it is to find a physician and then educate them. Yeah. It's a massive expensive ordeal. Uh, pharmaceutical, big, big pharma, I think. Big pharma has acknowledged it. They have a lot of mechanisms in place. Um, and the digital therapeutics company are just starting to wrap their heads around what that means. Could you dive? Yeah. That's fascinating. Could you could you just expand on that a little bit about what pharma are doing to help educate physicians versus what digital therapeutics companies are? Could you just dig into that? Yeah. So um, uh, everyone complains about us, which is fine. We're scattered across the United States. So we're hard to find. We're super busy. It's hard to get our attention. And then we're very particular in how you talk to us. That okay. just like strikes most tech people as offensive. <laughs> <laughs> Not <this time>. Which is, <laughs> right. Uh, <laughs> right, the am I Dr. Joe? Am I Jennifer? Classic yeah. pharma would be like, she's always Dr. Joe. <laughs> and digital would be like, come on. <laughs> and I'm not going to comment on it or explain it because I think the, the history and structure and whatever is, is massive. But I will say for my colleagues, especially ones who aren't in like uh, the middle of downtown Boston or don't run into software techs every day, that's a protocol and big pharma recognizes, hey, it's just easier to address her as Dr. Joe, not have the discussion so that I can talk about my product. Um, so, you know, that's a superficial, the yeah, culture. It's a great example. It's, <laughs> it's drastically different. But if you talk to someone at big pharma who's launching a new drug or a new vaccine, they'll say, look, I've spent massive money over the last five or 10 years getting through, this, through clinical trials, getting this through the FDA, but I have this massive team, not like four people, not like 10 people. It's like hundreds of people who have been preparing my medical affairs, getting ready to go out to different conferences, getting ready to engage what I've identified as key opinion leaders, which in digital, I think we have to revisit that. What is a key opinion leader? But key opinion leaders, pamphlets that clearly explain things. It's a crazy involved, organized, expensive education. Um, and it's been prepared way in advance. And if you ask a pharma executive, they would say, and I need to deliver it hard and fast to make sure that I can get it in so that I make the right impact in the market because I have this new product. If I don't go out and educate quickly, then I'm just gonna lose steam and it's gonna fizzle and go away or some our competitor will come in. That's, that's a great, that's a really great example, Jennifer. Uh, so, so you mentioned about, um, sorry, I told Chandan I keep quiet in the start and I can't help. No, you. no, no, you, uh, you, you said about key opinion leaders for digital, you said you re revisit that. You said maybe you should look at that again. Tell us what you, what you have in mind. Yeah, uh, just because I, you know, I think it's an influence over the last 10 years of what are key opinion leaders, key opinion leaders and classic oncology or classic cardiology or ones who have led clinical trials, they might be highly re um, recognized academics. Um, I think two things have happened. Uh, just general, the old school deference to the hierarchy has been um, turned upside down a little bit. I think it's because women entered the field. I think it's because we have more um, physicians of color, which are all great, but uh, we were traditionally pretty marginalized. <laughs> yeah. So if you just popped in like 
um, a very classic looking appearing person, um, I'm not necessarily going to listen to them just because they're traditional. So right. you're gonna have to come at me you know, with, uh, I will always defer to the science. I'll always look for that. But um, you know, old school pharma will, will pick a key opinion leader like that. I think we're just gonna have to be very aware of what an influencer and a key opinion leader is in digital and it takes different forms and fashions. Um, no one would have expected Kevin MD to be as yeah. influential as he was, right? That's yeah. insane and respectful. <laughs> yeah. um, and, and so I think it just, it looks different. Yeah. I think, no, I think it looks like digital influencers, um, women who have small groups, women who are throwing conferences, young people, and the interactions look different, I think, too. Yeah, I think that alludes to your earlier point on, I think it's having an opinion along with the fact of the matter as well. I think it's it goes beyond what's in the book, I think, to, to add a layer of yourself to it, I think, is what a lot of the digital influencers are doing. And, and I mean, you have to say if it's making an impact, it looks like it is. Um. Uh, so that's a little, <laughs> is it making an impact? Um, yeah, I, you know, I think it is. I, I, I personally talk to a lot of um, physicians in the digital space. I've been working in the digital space for a while, um, which I think is key anytime you're an influencer. If you say something, it should be pretty unbiased, meaning, um, yeah. You know, it should be from the heart. You really believe it. So don't actually stand by something that's just purchased that will never fly. Um, and then know the data. So if you're going to state something, be and but that's more of a healthcare thing. So if I'm going to state something as a healthcare person, I should have read the data myself and be able to say this is why I think so, and this is where I got the data, um, and I believe the data is true for this reason. Um, I am just going to make one point. <laughs> which is how do you engage physicians? Um, are we gonna go back to the massive old school conferences where you put a boring head up there to talk and give a presentation? Um, I think that's, I haven't participated in that in a long time. Um, I think it's uh, fading. Um, what do exciting, young, engaging interactions look like? I think it's a little bit unchartered. Uh, a friend of mine recently had a, what he called something like a whiskey tasting and radiology under the lights night. <laughs> but, <laughs> These ideas here, we're gonna we're taking notes. <laughs> I mean, who doesn't want to participate in that? <laughs> yeah. So was it like the radiology societies get together, but just trying to do something unique while also discussing the latest guidelines or whatever? Yeah, I would say it's uh, a little decentralized, meaning there are some societies that are doing a good pivot. I would say that the American College of Cardiology, their uh, radiology societies, I think, are very engaged and pivoting. There are some societies that haven't pivoted as much. Where I've seen the most success is getting behind what you've identified as an influencer and giving them, um, empowering them to create what they think is a, a meaningful event. So this one, whiskey tasting, was just... Uh, my friend Ajay, who is a pen radiology, or was a pen radiology, rather, he's graduated now, was just like, this is boring. I want to host my own dinner and I want to make it whiskey tasting. I'm going to pick the coolest club in Chicago and it's going to be this one intimate thing. 
And we'll also discuss a little bit about some educational things. Um, but you had Ajay who was just doing it because it was fun. You got other people on board because Ajay is like, it's fun. He knew what people wanted, but he also had a group of friends who went to follow yeah. him. You know, I think we're seeing that outside of healthcare as being the wave of the future in terms of engagement. I think it's refreshing, right? I mean, healthcare is a serious business, but we don't have to necessarily take ourselves too seriously. I think it's yeah. back to your point about being authentic and, and just being a little bit more human. And, uh, yeah. Just talk yeah. To people, you know, so. Yeah. Well, this has been a blast and we could go on for a long time, but unfortunately I'm looking at the clock here and we always like to ask, I don't know if Chandler's giving you a heads up on this, but we always like to ask. I did. Okay. Oh, that's right. I think she did and I forgot. <laughs> you weren't, if you weren't, you didn't didn't work. Work, what would you be doing? Oh, sorry. If I wasn't practicing medicine, what would I do? Yeah, if you, were, if you weren't doing what you're doing today and then you have to, go to pick an alternative universe to do something completely different. What would Oh, that's right. Shandana, you did warn me about this. And I said, it's going to be a boring answer. <laughs> it's I, I love what I do. Um, but that said, I did take a very non-traditional pathway in medicine that allowed me to have a lot of creativity, um, explore things that I really enjoy. And I started a company um, which uh, was strangely successful. Um, so that also means I have more financial freedom than I think the normal physician. Um, so I am unusually privileged to be delighted to be a physician, which I think is super meaningful, be able to explore um, different ways to make healthcare better um, and fundamentally hang out with really cool, innovative, brilliant, caring people who are committed to making a difference in the world. And I think if anyone in any career can accomplish that, then we won the lottery. That's it. Great to talk to you. Thanks so yeah. much for joining us. Absolutely. I really appreciate you taking the time. Very excited about this. Thanks, Jennifer.